welcome to Proud to Be, the show that highlights veterans, military personnel, and family members published in Proud to Be, Writing by American Warriors, a creative writing anthology that preserves and shares our nation's military experience through poetry, fiction, essay, interviews, and photography. I'm your PTV host, Lisa Carrico, and our guest for this episode is Ben White, an author and professor. As he was serving in his 22-year military career in the U.S. Army and U.S. Coast Guard, and then again when he was earning his MFA from the University of Tampa, Ben White thought he was a poet. But he has since discovered he's not a poet at all, but rather a witness, and what he writes is testimony. Ben has been published in three of the ten volumes, and today we hear some of his thoughts and stories behind his PTB contributions. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here, and especially good to continue my association with Missouri Humanities, uh, Southeast Missouri University, and the Proud to Be series. It's good to get back in there. <laughs> well, we are excited to have you, and thank you for um, all of your contributions and support for Proud to Be. Uh, ben, let's just jump right into uh, your military service. You have served in the U.S. Army and the U.S. Coast Guard. So tell us a little bit about how you came about serving. Tell us about your service. It was, it was, um, it was kind of like Bilbo Baggins starting off on an unexpected journey after an unexpected party. I just didn't have the party. But uh, <laughs> if you had asked anyone about me at, at, in those days, they would have told you that I was the least likely to join the military. Um, but out of high school, I was a, a all-district center fielder, so I wanted to continue the baseball dream and took it to a four-year school, and then I took it to a two-year school, and then kind of ran out of money, and there, I wasn't getting any offers to play ball anywhere. And in Kentucky at the time, it was... Farming was was terrible. A lot of farms were being auctioned off. 19% interest will do that. The good thing that came out of the 80s was farm aid and the good music. But uh, so I had to do something. And at the time, the Army was offering up uh, bonuses right off the street. If you went into the infantry, you would get an $8,000 bonus if you signed up for four years. <laughs> this is this is how anti-military I was at the time. I uh, I said, well, I, don't, I don't want the $8,000. I only want a two-year enlistment. <laughs> So uh, I remember the career counselor said, but if you come in for four years, we'll give you $8,000 and you can have any uh, military uh, occupational specialty you, you, you want. You qualify for them all, but we'll give you $8,000 for infantry, $5,000 if you want to be a tanker. I said, no, I just need the two years. So all I can give you for the two-year enlistment is the infantry. And I stood up and said, well, okay, thanks, but no thanks. And she said, but, 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 but sit down we'll send you to germany and i said okay how else is somebody from monticello kentucky going to get to germany with with three meals and, and, a, and a cot and and uh like, like a a chance to to experience europe so i sat back down signed the contract and went to the army for two years and after the two years i, I came out of, of of the army on the on the ronald reagan college fund <laughs> the, uh, the old veterans education assistance program and it was wide open I could go anywhere and it was really by chance that I put in a questionnaire at the sports complex at the University of New Mexico and it just so happened that the assistant coach at the time had was retired Air Force and he had been in the coach of the year in in the German American League which I played in while I was in Germany and he called back and asked the commissioner and the commissioner said, yeah, he can play. I don't know if you remember me or not, but he said, yeah, he can play. And so they gave me a chance to come out to the University of New Mexico. And uh, I finished up my eligibility on the baseball field, let go of the dream finally, and, and double majored in philosophy and creative writing. Now you can imagine with two years in the infantry, a degree in creative writing and a degree in philosophy, how many organizations were lined up outside my door to get me to work for them? Zero. <laughs> but uh, the, I went back to the Army and said, will, will, you, will you send me to officer candidate school? And they said, sure, we will. And what will my MOS be? They said, well, you were infantry before. 
you'll be infantry again. I said, well, I've been infantry. And uh, at the time, I thought, well, that was not a very good opportunity. Which, looking back, I wasn't right. But uh, I went across the street to the Coast Guard. And they said, we would love to have you come in. We've got prior service indoctrination. It's three and a half weeks long. You, as a, as a newlywed, that sounded good. <laughs> and uh, so three and a half weeks instead of 17 weeks of OCS sounded good. She said, we can't send you to officer candidate school yet because we're too small, but we'll get you in back in the military as enlisted. Uh, I, so I took her up on it, went to Cape May for three and a half weeks and then started the career. <laughs> and it, uh, it, it felt like home when uh, the Coast Guard welcomed me in and it, it felt like a good place to be. And it, and it turned into a 20 year career. So that's how Bilbo got back home. <laughs> when you were in Germany, yes. what did your service look like? During oh, we were we were uh, Cold War warriors, and it was uh, uh, some days it was a, a show because we we knew the Soviets were watching. They they had Soviet diplomatic uh, license plate that they told us to watch out for. So we knew the, the Soviets were in West Germany. And so when we mobilized, we, we mobilized mechanized. We, we were all mechanized. And um, so it was, it was that show. I never, I never went over to guard the border with Czechoslovakia, but that was a major part of being, being stationed in Germany at the time. And uh, uh, but we, we would, we, most of it was garrison life and, and we would be in the local training exercise fields or sometimes they would have to rotate through because there were only three training fields in Germany and all the units in Germany used them. So you had to wait and be scheduled and rotate through. So our field time was, was basically limited to the local field and, and working on the tracks and the motor pool. We did a lot of motor pool work. <laughs> and, uh, but um, when, uh, when it became our time, we would take the two weeks to go to the field, you know, at least three, three times a year through each, each of the three training areas. But uh, a lot of training, which, which got a, a peacetime training, got a lot of um, um, downtime and downtime was not always productive for everyone, but uh, it was a good chance to make the best of it and say, well, I'll get off and ride the trains and see Germany and Europe like I'd planned to do. So it was a great opportunity for me, although I did have some, some uh, uh, Soldiers, uh, new soldiers who hated Germany, <laughs> and all they saw of Germany was the barracks. So I would have hated it too. You had the luxury to at least get to travel. Sounds like yes, it was. It was a mindset to get out of the barracks, get away from the GI towns, and see see Europe. But um, um, you know, you always as long as you were always back on Monday morning, it was good. <laughs> you were good. <laughs> I was. I was good. Okay, well, um, you kind of already alluded to this, some of the degrees that you have earned, but um, over the years, you've earned an Associates of Art, Bachelors of Art, Master of Business Administration, Masters of Art, Master of Fine Arts, and your Doctor of Education. So perhaps you could talk about this experience, the drive for continued education, and in this process, when did you start writing about your military experience? Sure. It was, uh, as a college baseball player, I, I had to maintain eligibility. So, so school was the way to, to keep playing ball. No. So I kind of backdoored into the associate degree. I was ready to leave the two-year school. And of course, I'd been in school for two and a half years. And they said, well, what, what's your major? And I said, I don't know. I went to all these, these classes and played baseball. And they looked and said, well, this looks like a social science major. And I said, yes, yes, it does. <laughs> no, I'm, not, I'm still to this day not sure what a social science associates means, but I have one. So I'm, I'll, I'll hold it up and, and, <laughs> and champion it. But uh, I, I knew that in the, back, in the back of my mind, there was always the philosophy degree, the idea to get a degree in philosophy. And although I did go to a four-year school once and I was talking to the philosophy advisor, <laughs> I told him that, and he said, well, why? <laughs> and I, I really didn't have an answer. I kind of, I want to teach like your team. <laughs> why not? But um, I, I did get all the qualifications for the bachelor's in, in philosophy, and I, I went across the, the campus here at University of New Mexico 
And I talked to the philosophy department or the psychology department for the second major. So I'm still, I'm still in the army money. So I'll, I'll get the second degree. And I spent a semester in psychology classes. And when I finally told them that Sigmund Freud was an idiot, they kind of kindly asked me to leave the psychology department. And so I went back across to, to the humanities and, and I found out that, they, that I could get a degree in creative writing. I said, wait a minute, I can get a degree in that? I do, I, I write anyway, I like writing. So let me get in with, with that program. And it, uh, it was really rewarding. It, it, actually, when I left to the Coast Guard, I left in November, I left uh, a couple of graduate classes. Uh, one understood that I'd signed up and had to go. So I was, I got the A. One <laughs> didn't understand that I had to go and I got the B. But uh, so I started, my Coast Guard career with with a double major and and worked that into getting I did get to officer candidate school and a philosophy degree will get you to officer candidate school. <laughs> I actually use philosophy every day, but uh, it was the Coast Guard liked to, their junior officers to have the the secondary degree and uh, the graduate degree. And so I, I went back to City University and got the master's in business administration with a focus in quality management. Quality management was big in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, mid 90s. And um, so uh, and I leveraged that to get a consulting job in the Coast Guard. And it, it introduced me to training where I was in organizational training and got a lot of podium time on, on the other side of it. After, after sitting in the classroom, I got behind the podium. But um, uh, and I said, well, this is, this is kind of cool. And, and uh, I finished two courses in the program and I said, this is gonna take forever. And City University had uh, accelerated weekends, they had distance learning, they had online learning, they had uh, uh, all kinds of options. And I ended up finishing the last 13 classes in nine months because I said, well, let's just make it happen. <laughs> and, and once you do that, you say, well, this, uh, that was a good use of capacity. Maybe, maybe I, I could get another master's. And at the time, of course, Washington University had a, a master's program in educational technology leadership that helped with the online learning, which is really paying off now. <laughs> that, uh, that now I knew, and now I know why I took that. But um, so that was the second master's. And then... Um, Right before I retired, my goal was to get the doctorate and retire from the Coast Guard and move straight to the classroom. It didn't work out. I'd been retired for two, three months before I, I defended the dissertation. And then again, the, the college money knocked on the door because I had some left over. And they said, if you, if you have money in that old VEAT program, you can add money to it and be on the Montgomery GI. And so I did. And then the Montgomery GI Bill turned into the, the post 9-11 opportunity, and which was very much, it was, I couldn't leave money on the table. And, and so I, I went to the University of Tampa for the, the Masters of Fine Arts and, and, and creative writing. Again, creative writing, who knew? And, and got to, got to uh, the writing changed maybe a little bit with, with formatting and, and uh, the content didn't change though. And it, I think it, it really helped to find my voice. And I had it, but uh, nobody else knew I had it. So not just find my voice, but maybe to protect my voice in, in poetry and, and go from there. So it's, it's, always, it's always started with uh, a curiosity. And I, I think any college program, you, you have to maintain your, your curiosity to, to be successful. And the, the writing along the way, the military experience writing was, um, I, I see stories everywhere. I come from South Central Kentucky where storytelling is a tradition. And, and uh, so you, you have an ear for, for hearing a story, but you also get an eye for seeing a story. I say that's, that's more than what's on the surface. There's, there's more details there. And it took a, well, to formally write about the army, I, I was out. I, I'd already gotten out of the army. I wrote a few pieces in, in the program at, at the University of New Mexico. Uh, writing about the Coast Guard, it's, it's taken a while. I've been, uh, for the most part, it's, it's been after the fact, reflecting back on, on the experience and, and pulling the meanings out of those experiences. 
I think this makes complete sense. I imagine for many military writers, time, space, and reflection come with the, the writing territory. Um, so how do you see your military experiences influencing your writing? I see it as uh, the, the, uh, the advice writers give to writers, write, write, you know, and, and after 22 years, you start to catch on. Hey, wait a minute! I don't know what that is, <laughs> and you 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 see that it, it is just a, the experience that you're you're writing about, and being able to extract the the meanings out of sometimes meaningless situations was a was an opportunity to to see stories there, and it, it comes down a lot of it comes down to just the people. the The military is full of of not everyday people, sure, but there's also some characters that you would never come across if you you hadn't joined the military. And it, uh, I had been to two different schools and and uh, had gone to a, well, actually in uh, Miller, Missouri, there used to be Mickey Owen Baseball School, and I went out there a couple of summers and met a lot of people from Chicago and from the South and from the, the Midwest. And so I thought I knew a lot of people. A lot of types of people, <laughs> but the, the army was an eye opener. I said, "Wait a minute, I've never seen anyone like this, and or talked to anyone with that experience." So the, the more you talk to and interact with the people, and and you work with them, and live with them, and, and associate with them, you you begin to see their stories, and, and they're they're sharing their stories, whether they mean to be shared experiences or not. You're there too, so you're it's a shared experience that makes a, a good um, authentic story, I think a genuine story. And, and Hemingway's always talking about ringing true. And, and so if, if you're honest, the story will ring true and it'll have a good story behind it, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's pretty cool that you got to spend some time though in Missouri. <laughs> We're two summers, two summers. I was in Mickey Owen Baseball School out of outside Springfield. Okay. Uh, so Missouri, Missouri holds a place in my heart. <laughs> awesome. And something about the sun. My hair, when I had hair, it was red in Missouri. I would tell people, yeah, my hair's red in Missouri. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it just looked red. <laughs> the brown turned oh. red. <laughs> well, let's explore one of your poems called Cold Warriors, which you did mention this at the very beginning. Um, it is your first poem published with Proud to Be and is published in volume six. And if I'm correct, uh, there's a reference to a very popular song that came out in 1983. So I'm gonna go ahead and play the opening to the song. So hopefully all of our viewers out there are familiar with it. I do feel like it's one that's um, still around. So let's just play the beginning of that really quick. stanzas from this poem uh, and how you arrived at writing this poem and maybe its connection to 99 red balloons and what this <laughs> poem means to you. Uh, it was, in, we were getting it in the, in the original German for the most part. So 99 air balloons is, is how it was translated from. But uh, the first line is, hast du etwas Zeit für mich? Do you have time for me? Do you have some time for me? So thank you for having some time for me. You're welcome. And, uh, it's, uh, it's a poem called Cold Warriors, uh, a play on the Cold War, and, and then, of course, the war writing by, by American warriors. Um, but um, yeah, let's just read it. <laughs> Cold Warriors. Nina sang about loof balloons in the disco clubs where we danced, tourists on a tour. 
while the pure soldiers polished their boots and admired their combat patches, having stayed in the organization, betrayed by a nation of opinions about what they had done in their youth. While we traded Marlboro cigarettes for the attention of German girls who would dance with us when we listened to Nina sing about Luftballons, tourists on a tour. When pure soldiers held their jungle memories close, unconvinced by our ability to inherit their army. <laughs> and it, it's, um, of course, it, it's, we were a different generation than the Vietnam veterans who were our, our senior uh, NCOs, the non-commissioned officers. And their experiences were, when you could get them to talk about their experiences, they would. <laughs> and, and we would listen and not say a word. They had our attention. And <laughs> it was a, a matter of, of seeing that what their experience in the Army was different than what we were doing in the Army. And even the reasons why we were in the Army. I would go back to the, the, the farms going out of business in Kentucky. That, that was different than someone being drafted into to go into Vietnam. But uh, the, the, those, those senior enlisted members stayed in the Army. And it was, which was interesting itself. That, that was their organization. They made it their organization when so many people weren't making that their organization. But, uh, and even to start off with the song, it's a, it's a to be made that, that uh, we have, we had Nina singing to us when, when uh, they had the doors and Steppenwolves and that whole, that whole sixties generation of music that, um, I think in, in uh, there's a, there's a line in the Billy Joel song uh, about Saigon when they, when they talk about we had our doors we listened to our doors albums or we listened to our doors and and they were still listening to the doors <laughs> and which made a, the whole army uh, our fan every soldier is a fan of the doors but we were also fans of Nina and and uh, especially in Germany where we got to hear it in, in German language we had no idea what she was saying. <laughs> it was it was cool, and and uh, the when, when Nina bit her lip in the in the video, it was it was uh, uh, a very flirtatious moment for us to freeze the, the tape and 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 see when, when she looks at the camera and and bites her lip. <laughs> so it was a uh, it was a meaningful thing for us. So you start the the poem off there as Cold Warriors. Uh, I read this once to some a, a group of veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan, and and I had to admit, you know, it, it was tough duty, but somebody had to do it, and they appreciated my honesty about that. <laughs> but um, so it was um, knowing that the Vietnam veterans were about to retire, and and were retiring during my whole time there in in the army they were turning their organization over to a different generation, us, the Cold Warriors of us. And it was, it had to be, you know, just being curious and thinking about what they, how they foresaw it and, and how, they, well, how they saw it and foresaw their future of the organization being in our hands. They were reluctant. I'm not sure they, they trusted us, like they trusted each other and, and rightfully so, but it was, uh, it was an experience to to go down that line of thinking and see exactly where um, how how those veterans should feel about turning over their their organization to us, and I'm sure the the Korean and the, the World War II Korean veterans felt the same way because it, each generation is different, and you'll usually hear in the military you'll usually hear the senior folks say uh, man these kids today i gotta get out of here i gotta retire <laughs> and there's something to that i actually heard that come down to somebody who'd been in for four years saying once the coast guards man these kids today you've only been in four years and, but uh it, it's uh it, it's a sharing of their experience that was my experience <laughs> and that's where that cold warriors point came from I like this juxtaposition of passing the torch on from uh, our seniors to our youth and even in everyday life. Uh, I think that 
these kids today will always <laughs> be a phrase that's echoed. And one day I'm probably going to say that. Um, I'm going to try to prolong that as long as possible. But, um, but I also really enjoy the, you know, looking at how the generations are different, but also like being influenced by pop culture of the time and my father's a Vietnam vet and yes, he still rocks out sometimes to um, his 60s music that he probably listened to while he was over there, but he also rocks out to Barbara Streisand as well, so. <laughs> yes, and it, it is an eclectic bunch of, of people. stereotype <laughs> of um, So in your bio, you mentioned that you write as testimony. Could you talk a little bit on this concept and what this means to you? Uh, I see the my work is as more life experiences. Uh, I do have that philosophy degree, and I can get esoteric and, and and philosophical and push that edge too. But the 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 poems that are stories are sharing those experiences, and I, I've thought about this thought thought this through about the what history does to witnesses. It, it eliminates the, the historian will move in, they'll find the, the names of the people, the dates, the places, maybe the events, the results, and maybe some impacts, uh, some tangent of, of uh, uh, results. But the people who lived it and were there and saw it and, and were breathing in and out with a heartbeat and thoughts and fears and emotions and all those things get lost in the history book. So if you can capture that and, and be that witness to say this happened, whether it was just this happened to me and it, it was going on at the time, Nina was singing while I was writing <laughs> and uh, uh, to, to bring out that, that witness account, that firsthand witness account, it's, uh, it adds that voice to, to the humanity of history. And I think humanity, I think history has stepping stones, but they leave a lot of little stones out, out of, uh, along the journey. Um, it's, it's something, it's an idea I got from, uh, there's an anthology called Against Forgetting that uh, Carolyn Forche put together. And it is the, the poetry of witness. Uh, you look for an event, whether it's you know, a, a World War II, for instance, there were people who were living in, in through that and they wrote about it. That's the history that, that is more authentic and more genuine and more um, directly a story to be shared. So I, I saw that as that's, that's the kind of poetry I want to write. It's not necessarily poetry in the scholastic environment. It might surprise you that I have pulled away from the scholastic environment with my ideas. But uh, it, uh, the the scholarly de definition of, of a poem, I think, is why a lot of people don't like poetry. Well, I, I don't get it. it. It doesn't. It doesn't speak to me. So if you if you speak with a voice of a witness telling a story, in, in a in a poem form or in a short story form, any literary form, it's going to have more appeal to that common reader. And and so testimony is is here. I'll give you the testimony. You decide whether. History is guilty, whether I'm guilty or not, and uh, <laughs> uh, the the facts are there. Just document the facts and be genuine, and, and still you can. You can there's still room to add that emotion and those feelings into your work, and you know, ho hopefully it comes across of well, that, what would I do? You know, if, if I was in that situation, that he's being genuine about what he felt. So, what do you, what do you do? <laughs> and how would how would I do? And, then, and so you start to share the experience, I guess. That's something that Proud to Be does really well is that it's asking people from all over the nation to submit their stories in whatever creative way that they want to. Um, yes. And you're really getting a glimpse into uh, like what music somebody was listening to or, you know, being uh, under command of a, an older generation that's all in a different war and what that may feel like. So I really think it gives a really fresh and authentic experience in that writing for testimony as somebody who um, didn't serve, but um, also, again, has a father who's a Vietnam veteran 
who may not want to talk about his experience directly. He's only recently started opening up to me about those experiences. Reading these other testimonies kind of give me a better understanding of what my father went through or anyone else that serves. So I think that the writing uh, as a testimony is really powerful and a much needed voice uh, when telling humanity's stories and history. Sure, I agree. Well, let's go on to another poem published in PTV7 called Recordings for Later Listening, Lost Rounds. Perhaps afterwards you could tell the audience a little bit about this poem and what it's about. And if I'm remembering correctly, I believe it's a part of a longer series uh, published in another collection. So I'll let you take it away. Thank you. In uh, Recordings for Later Listening, uh, I think the last count is up to 90 points. Uh, only a handful of, of which have been published uh, incoming by the So Say We All group, included maybe six or seven of them. But this was, was another one recording for later listening, and it's called Last, Lost Rounds. And Tim Schumacher is a classmate of mine. It's, it's written after having a discussion with him and, and for him. The, the first person here is more of his perspective than mine. But uh, which which means I really had to bounce it off him first before I, before I went ahead and published it. But uh, he gave me approval. I said, <laughs> he, uh, I said, what do you think? He said, no, I like it. Go ahead. And, uh, so the, the, there is a after Tim Schumacher part here to it. But recordings for later listening, lost rounds after Tim Schumacher. There was no alcohol. Leadership was easier without it. So after I was discharged, you might think I was just making up for lost rounds, but that's not it. Alcoholic drinks are just better for me. They provide more clarity, especially over sports drinks. There are always sports drinks, our aids and Gatorades to fight the heat. But when I taste or even smell one of those, a desert wind blows sand across my mind my stomach explodes with roadside anxiety, and I can't even hold the bottle steady. And just just a, a coming back out of that experience that that uh, wasn't my experience, but that that the discussion pulled in, and I think it probably started off with a mention of I hate, I hate Gatorade or you know something like that, and then you go into why why what's wrong with Gatorade and Powerade, and then you you understand somebody else's perspective. And this is why. So it was just an idea that grew from a conversation that I had with that that younger veteran who had been in Iraq and and um, who who shared shared his perception or his perspectives with me. I could imagine that serving in a desert would really make you want to crave <laughs> your electrolytes. So, <laughs> yes. And there's there probably a time when you, well, that's enough of those. <laughs> enough of Gatorade's power. So, Ben, I've seen you read both in person and virtually. I feel like your work has a very honest feeling to it. Would you agree? And if so, how do you tap into that honesty? Oh. Um, I think it's it's the real the real focus on on the the experience and there there are some people who would tell you since I'm a Leo I have to be transparent <laughs> so, uh, I'm not sure if that's a, a, a astro astrological issue or not but I do have to be transparent. Uh, I, well, I'm a fellow Leo, so <laughs> <laughs> I agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> You have a need to, to be transparent. You can't tell. Oh, I'm going to tell you. Well, let's tell, go back to the some of the education. There's uh, in the doctorate program from George Washington, there was a lot of discussion in human and organizational learning. That's what the degree was in. There was a lot of discussion about sense making. And sense making makes sense to me. Okay, let's, what is that? What's really happening? What does that mean? And my, my dissertation, my personal dissertation was on mindfulness. In, uh, in an organizational setting and being mindful and seeing what is going on around you. And there was a, there's a quote I, I picked up along the way of those doctoral studies. Uh, Patricia May is a Chilean anthropologist and um, 
she said, um, people want to be the spider in the middle of the web. And because African, Kentucky, Spanish. <laughs> but uh, um, she said, people want to be the middle of the web. And you start thinking about, well, what if you crawled up to the edge of the web and you saw things going on? You still have to make sense of them, but they're not happening to you. You remove yourself from the happening and say, well, they're just happening and may not have anything to do with me at all, but the, it's still a human shared experience that I can look at in a different way. And so that mindfulness came in of, of thinking that we are rarely one thing as, as individual humans, we're rarely one thing. We are a lot of times many different things. And so even if you, if you take a, uh, if, if I take a very masculine persona moment, there's probably still some little kid behind there that's scared. How would the little kid want it to be portrayed? And if, if you let that, that other voice, not just the persona that's being projected, the image that's being projected, have all the say, you get to get down more to a more honest oh, um, depiction of what's happening. This, uh, yeah, I could talk to you about the, the, the masculine persona that I projected, <laughs> or I could let that, that more timid voice that's deep down in there as well intervene and, and let them both tell the story. And it's going to come out, I think, more honest and more, more genuine. Um, so, so you can write about that moment and being guided by um, other things that aren't being presented at the moment, but they're there. They're, they're there because we are different things at, at any given time. We're different people. We, we fall back on, uh, um, I don't want to lose anybody here, but, but uh, if, if all our, our capabilities come together, they kind of come together, then they break off, come together like a loosely coupled system is what the, <laughs> the theorists would call it. But it's, it's a, a matter of, I've got that skill I need it now. And, and a parent skill. Say, so say, well, I've got the skill as a parent. Do I need it in the in the military? Sometimes I do. That's a leadership thing to know that hey, I've got this skill as a parent. Let, let me show some parenting for this, this member who needs it. And, and uh, it, it comes across as more genuine because you, you're more of a real person, I think. To, and so it leads into the writing of of explaining the events and the experiences and the stories from a more personal view based on not just one person, but on all those experiences that make me me. I've got a lot of experiences that make me me. I got a lot of realities in here. I've got to get out. Right. We're very multi-dimensional people with a lot of different emotions that we have these different experiences and things tap into one another. So uh, I like that, you know, you're not just taking one persona and running with it, but it's a depth of, of honesty that I think can be relatable on different levels to different people. There was a, there was a uh, interview of a, of a Coast Guard member once and uh, the news was there and, and you know, the professional Coast Guard guy was there and they they asked him, uh, I think it was a storm, or they were they were all, they were underway during a storm or the, or the hurricane. The hurricane was coming in, and they asked him about it, and he said it was scary, <laughs> and it was such a genuine answer. Yeah, it was, and and thank goodness for him to say it, you know, and not try to say, well, you know, we were underway and, and did this this and this. He was just the, himself at that moment. And he, of course, he, he, he took some slack for it later on when he was on the news saying it's scary, <laughs> but it was honest. And, and that's a, a great, it makes a great story itself. And, and to, to steal that story, I'm going to write that down <laughs> and, and remember it and say, well, that's, we're people. And, and sometimes it's scary. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. And sometimes it's funny. Sometimes it's both. Sometimes it's, you know, it can be more than one thing. And we can both be, see it from more than one perspective. Absolutely. Well, as you have already mentioned, we know your military experience influences your writing. 
Um, and you've mentioned a, an author already, and we've talked about musicians. So uh, where <laughs> else do you draw influence? Um, perhaps from other writers, other musicians, poets? Well, I'll combine a writer with a musician. Well, I'm a musician. Uh, I admit that I'm a, a big Bob Dylan fan. <laughs> and as a writer, that turned into a legitimate uh, choice. But since he won the Nobel Prize in literature, so I, I was right the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> I knew he was a writer. <laughs> and but uh, uh, you know, the, a lot of early his work was a, a an early influence on on the things that you you try to how you see the world. And, and he's he's a a great practitioner with the, the adjectives, making the adjectives do a lot more than just say one thing about one object. It's, it's, uh, it's saying many different things, the gray flannel drawer or, or, or whatever line you want to pick. That just came to my head. <laughs> um, cowboy mouth, cowboy mouth, what does, it, what does that even mean? You know, and, and I looked through and, but I had a, an advisor at Tampa who, who gave me, uh, it was the first semester I was there, and, and it was a low residency. So we were there for two weeks in the summer and then two weeks in January. But one the first two weeks there, he said, uh, uh, he was looking at my work and he said, you know, writing a song is different than writing a poem. And I said, that's a good point. I'll, I'll remember that. And, so, and, and uh, Alan Michael Parker is, I'll, I'll give him, I'll give him some, some credit. And because he said that, I didn't remember saying it, but uh, it stuck with me that, you know, writing a, writing a song is different from writing a poem and, and you're here to write poetry so you can let go of the end rhymes and try to to get those country lyrics down <laughs> or desolation row rework just desolation row into my own but uh so so the early days were with dylan but uh um i'm also a a uh influenced by the the warrior poets Actually, I wrote an essay that was included in, in an anthology of essays, Faraway far away Villages, I think. Is, uh, but the, it was on warrior poets and starting with, with Wilfred Owen and the old lie. I mean, here he is, a, a soldier fighting in World War I, and he talked about the old lie and, and, uh, and he, the depiction of what's going on. Is, is honest and it's true and he's there and it's, it's real to him, transparent. He must have been a Leo too. <laughs> and, um, so there's, there's Wilfred Owen, but then Keith Douglas was a World War II English poet. And I read uh, Fergie's My Neat, Forget Me Not, his poem. And I didn't write anything for three days after that. I said, why? It's, <laughs> there's, there's no reason to write anything else. It's, that's just a, a poem that sticks with you and says, you, you know, you, it's tough to beat that, that sentiment. And it's, it was all about going back to a battle and, and seeing a, a, uh, a dead German soldier who had a picture of, of a, a girl. And, and on the back, it said, forget <laughs> my neat, forget me not, and love Steffi. And, and it was here embodied is the soldier and the lover in in the desert you know it's just it's just a powerful image um, and so keith Douglas, he was actually killed in the war so he, he cut short and he, he he would have been a bigger influence if not and then uh william wantling is was you know working my way up through the the history of wars um the william wantling was a korean marine Marine in the Korean War. And he was also known as the San Quentin poet because he, he was sent to prison for drugs and, and uh, which he said was a carryover from being a Marine in Korea because they, they gave you morphine after an accident, which may or may not have been a true story, but the way he depicts a, the, and writes about the, the experience may, may have been an influence as well. Uh, Bruce Weigel is a Vietnam poet, but then Leroy Quintana, and I'm not sure if, if how familiar Leroy V. Quintana is to, to readers, but he he's actually from New Mexico. He, he graduated from Albuquerque High School, went straight into the Army. And he has a book called Interrogations. And it's very hard to find, but it's, it's, uh, it's worth the find. If you can find it, it <laughs> it's called Interrogations, and it's, it's poetry straight out of Vietnam. 
and he's actually the the influence that that I stole from instead of interrogations. That's when I went to recordings, recording for later listening. Uh, was was a was taken from interrogations. I just call it recordings. It could have been interrogation, <laughs> but uh, um, so it's it's a uh, another influence on that kind of military writing of, of being being honest and and I mean they're very short poems, but they're they depict what's going on. And, and uh, sometimes funny, sometimes horrible, sometimes horror stricken. But uh, so Leroy can uh, <laughs> stop with him because he's a, he's a he's a uh, he's a good influence. He has been a good influence. He's an Albuquerque guy, but I don't know. I can't find him. <laughs> I'm right here in Albuquerque, and I can't find him. Well, thank you for sharing these wonderful recommendations. I could imagine that some of our listeners will be interested in, in learning more about some of the poets that you have mentioned. One more of your poems. Um, this one is published in the most recent release of PTB10, and it's called Memorial Thoughts. Memorial Thoughts. 37 years. Another anniversary of a bad day at the 1st and 51st Infantry, when the machine gun was accidentally discharged and fired around out of the barracks room and through the arm of a soldier and into the collarbone of another, where it was deflected down to tumble around his chest cavity, taking out his heart and lungs, just like it was designed to do before lodging in a rib. The medics swarmed in on the Thursday morning, 26th January, and kept his brain alive. But when the German doctors at the Krankenhaus cracked him open, they showed them the mush of organs they'd been trying to save. Thank you, Ben. Uh, this is such a powerful and includes such vivid imagery. Uh, would you mind telling the audience about what inspired you to write this and what you hope readers take from this poem? Well, it, it, uh, it, it, it is based on an event, an actual event. It was a Thursday morning, 26 January, 1984. And you know, when you remember the exact day and the day of the week and the, the day of the month, that it, it was probably an impactful event. Um, the, the combat support company had just come back from the field and they were cleaning weapons in the barracks room, which was a common practice. You, you take your weapon up to your room and you clean it. But there was a round that hadn't been cleared from the field and it, it should have been cleared at least five times, but it made it through a lot of overlooks processes um, that, that everybody had questions about what was the round doing in, in the in the weapon, it was an M60 machine gun. And um, he, the, the person who was going to clean it was, had it at his hip and it discharged and it caught the, the first soldier in the arm and deflected down into the collarbone. Um, and I was in the, the uh, personnel administration center that morning and looking across the, the base and saw the ambulances going to, to the building. So you knew when somebody got hurt, you knew it was probably bad. The ambulance would go over and respond and, and, and uh, um, bring somebody back for aid. But you didn't think about it being as bad as it was. And uh, I actually had a friend who was a, a medic. He was from Louisville. And uh, he, he, he rode along in the ambulance to the, to the hospital, the Crockett House, the, the hospital where the German doctors were. They said, you know, we, we give you credit. You, you, you did keep his, his brain alive and you, he's, you know, you, you did all you could, but let us show you what happened. And they, they did. And so you, you piece that together into a story that it, it's a witness story that um, if you think about Cold War, people in Germany listening to Nina, as well, you know, what a, what a great place to be, but we, we had casualties too, you know, and it was, it was still a dangerous job and, and, and around dangerous weapons that, that we, we had to know. So to capture that into its own story, I think it's one of those moments in, in historical testimony that if somebody doesn't write it down and, and thanks to, to Proud to Be to, to publish it, it gets lost. It gets lost in the history. Nobody's going to remember that, that the kid who, who went to prison for a year for doing it 
and the, the kid who was injured in the arm and the, and the kid who was, who was killed. So it's a matter of, of capturing them. Like I said, I've, I've written it. Just I, I've probably every year on the anniversary, I write some kind of new version for it and reflect back on it and say, well, what kind of more meaning can I can I extract from that event? And you find that you, you just shift another year older or you know a different way of looking at it. There's another point there. There's another side of the story to be told. And it's the same core event, but there's other aspects to look at it. Uh, the the uh, person who, who, who went to, to Mannheim prison, they found him guilty of manslaughter and he went there for a year and of course discharged. But uh, he was about to have a child. She'd be about 38 now. So you think about the, the disruption in the family and, and those type of things. There's, there's, there's stories in there that need to be captured. And, and yeah. I was there. And, <laughs> I was I was there and and uh, uh, had those feelings the, of the, the aftermath of the event. But some responsibility to history, I guess. Looking at a moment in time and capturing the different sides of it, I feel like that that right there is your your storytelling roots. <laughs> yeah, my my grandmother would be proud. <laughs> she, she was she was known to start the uh, the story of the three pigs. She was known to start it with well, one day the old sow went in and told those three youngins they got to get up and get out of there and fend for themselves. So yeah, yeah they probably did. I'm liking the retell of that. That's great. <laughs> that was her way. <laughs> While preparing for your episode, uh, I came across several of your published pieces, uh, The Kill Gene, uh, Conley Bottom, which you call a home war, and a book of what looks like narrative poetry called the Recon Trilogy Plus One. Uh, could you tell our listeners about these other works uh, and especially about uh, what is a home war? <laughs> yes. Well, the, the Kill Gene was an e-novel. It was published by English company. Um, I, I'm pretty sure that they, they just did it for a five-year run. And it, if, you, if you find it, buy it, because it's up there with interrogations. It'd be hard to find out. But, uh, um, it was a, a novel about the, the Cold War and serving in the Cold War, what the mindset was for the, the soldiers. Uh, uh, the Kill Gene came from an idea of, what happens when when uh, you're trained to kill, but it's peacetime and and you you shouldn't. <laughs> so it, it's uh, uh so where does that gene go? Does it lay dormant or or what happens to it once you get it all trained up to do what it's trained to do? How do you check it? And um, you know you go down to the to the fence and and with with your M60 machine gun with with um, on alert because there's German protesters outside the fence and people, someone like me with, with the curiosity and the mindfulness to say, you know, this is a civilian that I have in the sights of this weapon. What, uh, what does that mean? What, why? <laughs> no. um, so it's, but it's, uh, so the kill gene was just capturing that, that time of Cold War. Very few stories come out of the, of the Cold War. Um, I think there was a movie once, Buffalo Soldiers, but it, that's the only one I can really think of about that, that time period. Uh, Conley Bottom is a point noir. It goes back to my Kentucky roots. It's a series of, I think, 34 poems about a place. Conley Bottom was on a lake where we uh, used to go swimming. It's Conley Bottom. It's a man-made lake. They, they dammed up the river. And of course, it flooded all the farmhouses out back up the, the river. And, and formed Conley Bottom where it was, it was uh, the slope was good enough to go swimming in. And there's also a boat dock, there's still a boat dock there. And the, so boats would pull in and, and fill up with, with gas and get ice and maybe play the French fries. <laughs> Some of the best French fries in the whole world. But uh, the Point Noir, it, it, uh, it, it takes what scholastic studies will tell you a poem is and it'll take scholastic studies about what a, a, a memoir is. And I merged them to where my, my memoir is in poem form. So it's a poem noir. 
<laughs> and uh, so it's my own genre. I created it. You heard it here first. <laughs> and uh, um, but it's it's just that series of poems that, that based on on uh, uh, events that sometimes change when when you get older and reflect back on. So you know there was more meaning there. Uh, the the uh, the men who came around to to show off and open Coke bottles with their teeth weren't there to impress me as much as they were there to impress my, my single mother. <laughs> but who knew? I thought they were just impressing me. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, those type of reflections that you look back on and see. So that's Conley Bottom. Um, there's uh, uh, another, another uh, piece that's published, uh, Running Wild Press, is called the Recon Trilogy Plus One. It's, <laughs> I wasn't sure if quadrilogy was a word, and then when I thought it was a word, I wasn't sure how to spell it. So we went with trilogy plus one. <laughs> it's, a, it's a series of four longer poems um, set in a format, a poetic format, format that the first one is Triggerfish one, two. Triggerfish is a lieutenant who is in the jungle with a, a head injury, waiting for a medevac to, to come and, and, and get him out of there. But as he's laying there, he's visited by historical characters. Uh, Diogenes, the philosopher, comes in and, and joins him and calls him Alexander. Hey, Alexander, you don't look so great. <laughs> and uh, um, he also patrols Woodstock. He, he, he finds himself, he, he, and he's, he's got a radio, but the radio cord has been severed. So he, he's talking on the radio. Of course, it, it's not going anywhere except all in his head. And... So he's at Woodstock and, and, and they're telling him, uh, no, you're in enemy territory. He said, no, they just gave me a peace sign. They said, no, that's for, that's for Victor Charlie. That's, that's not, you're, you, you've got to fight your way out of there. But he's at Woodstock. So he's fighting his way out of the music festival. And, and uh, which is, you know, just a, a what, ha what would happen? That's the way the, the whole story came about was what would happen if, if a soldier was at Woodstock. What, if they were patrolling, what would happen? And he ends up at Kent State University doing the same thing, talking back to Echo 6, Echo 6, Echo 6. <laughs> this is Triggerfish 1, 2. Um, which, and I think some of the, some of the, the, um, the language in it is, is taken from radio speak from the, from the military, which is very poetic. If you, if you sit back and listen to people on the radio, there's a cadence to it. There's a there's a rhythm to it, and so triggerfish one two triggerfish one two. This echo six over, and it, it's just soothing, and to to have it come in when you're waiting for a medevac, it soothes him to hear echo six come back and, and, and tell him what's going on. But um, he he uh, he goes to World War Two, France. He turns into Simone de Beauvoir, <laughs> and uh, so it's a very interesting interesting uh, uh, piece. The second piece is Scarecrow Angel, where again a, a Vietnam veteran is is on watch. It's it's an early morning watch, and he's visited by his imaginary friend from childhood, the Scarecrow Angel, and so he goes and he's telling his story and thinking about like like soldiers do when they're sitting there looking off into the darkness. You your mind wanders, but this time it wanders along with his imaginary friend. The third one is the the leg. And it's it's about a severed leg in Vietnam. Is it recovered? But takes on a life of its own in the jungle. And and the, the the North Vietnamese will talk about it. They'll see it. They'll have encounters with it. And then the last one is um, oh, it's called El Dorado. And it's it's a it's about a Lonnie Trujillo is leaving Albuquerque to go to San Francisco to go to Vietnam. And on the Greyhound bus, he meets El Dorado. El Dorado was a, the El Dorados were Pancho Villa's elite guard. They were, they were his, his golden bunch. And, and he was one of them when he was younger during the, the Mexican Revolution. But now he's an old man. And so they used to strike up a conversation and share some, some, uh, some food from an Albuquerque kitchen. <laughs> and uh, so Lonnie gets to Vietnam and he, he has a, he's injured as well and another head injury and the Greyhound bus pulls up and El Dorado steps off, but this time he's wearing his, his Mexican Revolution gear. 
and he helps Lonnie get back to base by the lessons that he, he had told them on the bus. You, you didn't hear any conversation on the bus, but it comes evident what they talked about when, when Lonnie remembers and he's there with him to get back to base. <laughs> That's the four in, in recon trilogy. And uh, um, not, well, it, it's, it's kind of a, I think interesting. <laughs> interesting way to take history and merge it into to different stories and the idea for El Dorado was what if what if a Vietnam veteran or soldier going to Vietnam had met someone in the in the Mexican Revolution what would the what would the discussion be and El Dorado tells him America's not going to win that revolution it's it's the revolution lives you know this is my experience telling you that that you're, it's just not going to happen and it goes and it talks about how Pershing came into Mexico looking for Pancho Villa and couldn't find him. He said he's he's everywhere, he's nowhere. We can't find him. So the merger of history was was the the drive behind that. Well, that whole series. I love it. These three pieces are pretty different in their own ways. One I feel like is throwback to your roots and storytelling. Uh, you know. Uh, the kill gene really kicks it back to serving in Germany, um, has like a sci-fi feel to it. Um, but yeah, and then just kind of your love for philosophy and history and, you know, interweaving like Woodstock into there, some music <laughs> and pop culture. I feel like all of this is very much like you that we've talked about through this and some of your interests that you weave in and some of your your past and I, I love it. Well, would you like to tell us where else your work has appeared, um, what you have in store for the future or where people can find your works? Let's see, I have uh, the, the sequel to Conley Bottom is Mill Springs, which is being worked on now. It, it should be out shortly, <laughs> not going something solid. But uh, it's, it's Mill Springs, a poor more of place and people because my, my family lived in Mill Springs, Kentucky. We, we came back from Alaska and we were waiting for our house. It was being rented out. So we had to wait for the, the contract to end so we could move in. It could move out and we could move back in. But uh, meanwhile, we rented a house in Mill Springs, Kentucky, right above the, the, the old corn mill. And it was also the place of, of the Battle of Mill Springs and the Civil War. So kind of looking at, at the family and the issues the family was going through that my parents were on the brink of a divorce with, with six kids in tow and but then we were in a place where there had been a a civil war battle and so there's you know what would what would my brothers do if they'd been there 100 years before what would they think so it's more of a, a war of place to capture the events that, that still hover in that place and, and haunt that place so that one's coming out. Then there's a third one in that, in that trilogy. It's planned. It's, I still got to write it. It's Steubenville, which is also a small community in, in Kentucky. But uh, uh, as far as, uh, well, uh, I, I do have one that is, uh, uh, it's written under anonymous. It, the title is Say Their Names. Because I, I hesitated to have a book called Say Their Names, and then have my name on it. <laughs> so it, it's Say Their Names, not mine. And it's uh, it's more socially driven. So it, it's it's published as well. It, but it is under anonymous. But if you if you look close to the writing, you might, you might see behind it. <laughs> and uh, uh, let's see, the, I'm, I'm not supposed to advertise this, but I'm going to because uh, there's a series of Coast Guard poems called Semper Paratus Volume 1. Semper Paratus Volume 1. And it's in the works of, of about to get under contract and, and, and be published in late spring, or the spring, or the summer. And it's called Semper Paratus. <laughs> Coast Guard people know what I mean. Always prepare. Uh, and as far as what I'm working on, I've got, I've got all kinds of unpublished collections from Kentucky Girls, Kentucky Profiles, Soundtrack of a Broken Heart, When Interstate 40 Was My Girlfriend, Dystopia, The Flesh Curtain, The Mermaid Skeleton. <laughs> it all just goes to show you that I'm a very prolific poet because I'm a very lazy fiction writer and vice versa. <laughs> 
Well, there's a lot of imagination here. So um, hopefully some folks will investigate uh, your other works that are not published and proud to be. Well, with that said, what do you hope that others gain from reading your proud to be contributions and military related writings? There are many stories that make up military service. There's, there's no one set. Um, yes, you, you're in the military, you will do this, you will be that. It's just not, <laughs> it's just still, it's just too many people for that to happen. But uh, having them written is vital, but having them published gets them out to a wider audience in the military, to the military audience for sure, but even beyond. They said, oh, wow, that's a, that's, that's a firsthand story that I never would have thought about that happening or, or that, that, uh, that coming about. But uh, it, it goes back to having the well-written literature that, that is genuine. So to, to sum it up, uh, just uh, I would hope that the readers listen for and then hear the honesty in the voices. Ben, absolutely uh, well-spoken. Uh, I had such a great time talking to you. Thank you for participating in Proud to Be and for your honest and earnest approach in telling your stories through poetry. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> if you would like to read Ben's PTB pieces, you can purchase Proud to Be volumes 1 through 10 at mohumanities.org backslash veterans. This podcast is brought to you by the Missouri Humanities. Please help us share these stories by sharing episodes with friends, family, and on your social media platforms. If you're listening on an app, don't forget to follow us and leave a review. I'm Lisa Carrico, and we hope you will tune in for future episodes of Proud to Be as we interview PTB contributors to discover the stories behind their PTB contributions. <laughs>